Are you interested in academia's role in establishing the better future for cities? What do you think is not academia's role? How can we improve academic research for the better future for cities? Stay tuned for answers from Jenny Pei, Richard Manasseh and Magnus Moglia. What is the future for cities? Do you want to learn more about them? Do you want to know how others think about them? Do you want to be part of the conversation? Then this is the right place. Welcome to What is the Future for Cities podcast. This episode is a panel discussion where I invited back previous interviewees to answer some questions together and let them discuss the different viewpoints. The panelists were Professor Jenny Pei, Professor Richard Manasseh, and Associate Professor Magnus Moglia about their understanding of academia's roles, responsibilities, and opportunities in establishing the future of cities, the distinction between R&D and academic research, multidisciplinarity, academic needs, and many more. So let's start with a proper introduction. Professor Jenny Pei is a leading international researcher in human-centered computing. She is Professor of Interaction Design at Swinburne University of Technology, Melbourne, Australia and the director of the Center for Design Innovation in the School of Design and Architecture. She has a transdisciplinary background spanning architecture, computer science, and human-computer interaction. Her research areas include design methods, interaction design for mobiles, augmented reality and virtual reality, digital health, interaction design for smart spaces and digital twins, design for digital workspaces, and user experience design. Professor Richard Manasseh is a mechanical engineer with specialist knowledge of fluid dynamics. At a fundamental level, Richard's research focuses on wave modes and oscillators in fluids and their interactions. He is best known for his work on the vibrations of bubbles, called bubble acoustics. His active projects examine ocean wave power machines, the interaction of ultrasound with microbubbles and live cells for medical diagnostics and therapeutics, and the interaction of ultrasound with droplets for food processing. Further application of his research have included spacecraft engineering, coastal oceanography, thunderstorms, submarine noise, wastewater treatment, and microfluidic devices. Richard is a fellow of the Institution of Engineers Australia and the Chartered Professional Engineer. He has served as both President and Vice President of the Australasian Fluid Mechanics Society. He became a full-time academic in 2010 after a career in industrial R&D and headed Swinburne's Department of Mechanical and Product Design Engineering for three years after a year as Mechanical Engineering Discipline Leader. Associate Professor Magnus Moglia loves data and numbers, so it was not strange that he was drawn to sciences. In Sweden, he studied physics and mathematics, graduating from the Royal Institute of Technology of Stockholm in 2000. He is passionate about cities and sustainability. He arrived in Australia in 2001 and then spent nearly 20 years studying urban sustainability topics at the CSIRO. There, he discovered and embraced the science of complex systems and completed his PhD at the Australian National University's Crawford School for Public Policy. Magnus is now an associate professor at Swinburne University's Centre for Urban Transitions and the theme leader for the research on eco-urban infrastructure and systems. He researches decarbonization technologies, nature-based solutions, urban regeneration practices, and circular economy. Previously, he was also leading and undertaking research on a range of potential sustainability solutions, including residential solar panels, rainwater harvesting, telework, future city imaginaries, climate adoption in Kiribati and Vietnam, rice-forming technologies in Laos, and just workforce transitions in Queensland. And with that, Jenny, Richard and Magnus, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time and appearance. I'm really interested about what we will talk regarding the research and academia's role in establishing the future of cities. So let's start with this question. What do you think is academia's systemic role in establishing the future of cities? And let's start with Magnus. Yeah, I had to think a little bit about what it is. Firstly, I think academia has a lot of different roles. So I listed about seven or eight different types of roles in that. The first and obvious one is what drives 
any future vision is the knowledge about new things that we can do from the types of things that Richard was talking about, different technologies, different solutions. And technologies here is broad term of any type of new way of doing things. But especially it's become pretty obvious these days that I think there is a lot of information out there for people and a lot of people who are not academics perhaps often might get the wrong idea, especially with misinformation and disinformation and so on. There is an article by Ryan Atkinson on electric vehicles in The Guardian. It's a good example, just littered with lots of factual error about it. And it's good that there is a discussion, but I think it's also good that there are academics who can sort of provide a little bit more of the factual basis for what's actually there rather than, I love Mr. Bean, but he's probably not on top of all the facts, clearly. I can keep going, but I'd be interested to hear what Richard and Jenny's got to say. So I think there is a problem, as you say, Magnus, in information source, that where we had very limited information, which was always highly refereed or published within accepted books or very much a controlled information flow that was coming through, which academia would then be the custodians of this knowledge and we would then send it outwards through our students or our talks or our dissemination. We would also research particular gaps and then fill them in and come back with facts or proofs, which our peer community would make sure that we're doing this all properly. And then also our ethics committees that we're really producing truths. Then we are the custodians of the knowledge. And now I think that role as academic teachers and even I think as researchers, we still are very rigid and make sure that we validate our results and make sure that we know what we're talking about when we release something. And if we don't, our peers are doing it. But we're now in this situation where we're being asked to do articles in kind of online blogs or articles in online news articles. So even the academics' credibility is getting blurred. But then there's all these people who not even Rowan Atkinson or actors, but just all these people who set themselves as practitioner experts writing in Denzine, writing in Medium, and then the students are getting hold of this as well as what we're telling them, and they're finding us a little bit old-fashioned, a little bit dry, we're coming from books, but there's this cool stuff out there. And so this information is actually having more impact on even our students, not to mention all the people who don't go to university and be students and get in contact with academia. So it's really difficult sorting through what we can trust and what we can't trust. And now we've got ChatGPT, which is students are going, oh, this must know all the knowledge of the world in one spot. And, of course, it gets it wrong as well. It sort of is now starting to proliferate its own truths, which are not truths because it's going on itself and discovering what it already said or it hasn't really got that judgment that we are employed to put over information or knowledge as academics. So our role, I guess, is establishing truth or facts and disseminating them or imparting them to students. And that's all we can do. We can't actually check that we're being listened to. Now, that's really true. And it's gone way beyond the topic of cities as well. Mm -hmm. uh, true of everything, isn't it? What you've said, Jenny and Magnus. But we do have a a job and that's as teachers of course so that's where you know we can continue to emphasize what probably should be drilled into people from the age of primary school and that is check the sources of information that you get that's of course always been a part of formal education where students write essays assignments whatever you have to do some research certainly in what i've just finished teaching this semester they get marks depending on how properly they cite their sources, what sorts of sources they are. And there's even a league table that's given to them. Referee journal papers, biased credibility, random blog, basically zero credibility. So do the sources quote their sources? And what is probably very difficult for the general public to understand in any context, cities or otherwise, is that what they need to do, if they really have a new source that they haven't come across before, if it doesn't cite its sources, well, ignore it. That's easy. But if it does cite its sources, they then got to go to those sources, try and find the sources, which if don't have available to them a university account, they may not be able to get some publications. That's understandable. And then they've got to check those sources to see if those sources in turn cite their sources and so on and so on, building up a, a set of tree roots of knowledge that gives some confidence that the single fact that they're referring to is in fact got a basis to it. And then, you know, isn't a cherry-picked fact? Maybe you're true, but it may be cherry-picked out of context. So that's really what we've got to train people to do. 
So and it's very hard convincing them that that's hmm. a worthwhile process. Yeah. So, so why should I go through all that effort? But part of it is respect as well for other professions and other areas. And in the city context, it is a genuinely multidisciplinary area. So what we can do as academics and educators, we could propose some sort of urban course. You know, we do have architectural engineering, for example, at our university, Swinburne, and others do. That's one example of a situation where you've got a course which has that element of multidisciplinarity to it. There could be others, urban planning, for example, where people are properly trained to look at, as they should be in other disciplines as well, but they should, they're properly trained to look at the sources of information to see if they quote their sources, to see what the factual basis of it is. And where it delves into detail, it could be something biomedical if they're talking about the health context of a building, for example, that they can't really make an informed assessment to know how to and when to ask someone who is an expert, how to assess whether they're experts. So the more multidisciplinary the area is, and I do sense this urban area is a very genuinely multidisciplinary area, the more important it is that we train the students to be able to mm. figure out if the source is reliable of information and how to get an expert opinion on it. I think there's also something here about an academic's role in influencing policy or having some input on policy because a lot of practitioners are guided by policy. So I'm going to go with the planning regulations. I'm going to go with whatever they're saying is the current CO2 emissions possibility without sort of thinking about what the knowledge behind that is. And so I think it's also very important that we can sit here writing public publishing articles until we're blue in the face. <laughs> like just keep publishing, publishing, but we've got to make sure where that dissemination is heading. And I guess the word that's coming up again and again is impact. So are we doing research that is actually having real-world impact? And in terms of the future of the city, then, yes, we need to make sure that somehow the information, the facts that we are discovering, the knowledge we are uncovering from looking at past sources and reviewing them is actually getting to the people who need to actually make that happen. And I think it goes beyond that in terms of the roles of the academics Academics are kind of in a very good situation of being able to break free from, like if you're in industry or consultancy or even government, you're problem solving on an hourly basis, minute by minute sometimes, hour by hour, day by day, much shorter timeframes. Whilst as an academic, you can break free from that sort of wheel, if you like, and you can look at the big picture more. So I think it's our responsibility as well to say, okay, we have the kind of current way of doing things, status quo, but we don't have to stick with the status quo. We can actually change the paradigm and do things differently. And I think as academics, we probably the best place to be able to point those pathways out. And those pathways, we can identify them not just based on our current knowledge, we can identify them based on a mix of things, a mix of understanding of what the potential tools we have in the toolbox that we might not utilize enough for some reason or other institutionally, culturally, socially hasn't been adopted. Or it might be that we just haven't, we're limiting ourselves in, in the way that we're making decisions or the way that we govern ourselves. And so as academics, we, there is an interface here between developing those new solutions and developing the knowledge and also working with communities, practitioners in government to develop those new visions that break us free from the current status quo of doing things. That sort of paradigm shifts. Perhaps it wasn't so as important or we didn't realize it was so important 50 years ago. But at the moment, when we have massive big challenges associated with climate change, especially and biodiversity issues, but also other things like the unintended consequences of new technology like AI and so on. So we need a different way of addressing those big challenges. As academics, we have an important role of figuring out how to break free from a current way of doing things so we can overcome it because we're not going to do it with the old ways. Do you feel that's something to do at this point in time or is that a challenge, an ongoing challenge through history that we've always been sitting there going, oh, right, we need to stop doing things the way we've always done them and, and reface these new challenges? Yes, I think it probably has always been there to some extent, but I don't think it's been as important before as it is now. I think the urgency of essentially exponential growth that we've had has caused, has solved a lot of problems for us, but also caused a lot of other problems. And it just made it really urgent at the moment to look 
to those alternatives. We do need to be able to explain what we're doing in lay terms. And that's uppermost in my mind. I've got to give a talk to a local government council in a couple of weeks. And I have spoken with them before, but this is now a situation where we're getting interesting results. And they're lay people. They're not engineers. They're not physicists, not mathematicians. They're just ordinary people who happen to be elected to council. So I have to be careful in what I say, that I use the right words that are appropriate for the audience and appropriate for the situation. It's very easy to use technical words, which are the same as general English words, but maybe misinterpreted. That's something you've got to really understand, that words that we use in our own little disciplines, which we use every day with our colleagues, are often words which have a much different or general meaning outside. So little things like that, I do not think people had to worry about to the same extent in the past. No. And if we go back to the notion of you know, all this information that's now so readily available to the community and everyone. I think it's actually raises some challenges in terms of as academics and our responsibility to maintain what is closer to the truth than other things. But it also actually is an opportunity, I think, for us to learn from what's happening. I think in academia, we have a slight tendency to focus perhaps on theories rather than evidence sometimes and develop language and ways of thinking that might not always be aligned with the latest evidence. And I think now, with so much information being available, it sort of highlights some of those tensions. So many roles for academia, keeping the information factual and teaching and communicating this information and challenging the status quo to find new ways for our current problems or even the future problems. What is not academia's role? Well, I think what is academia's role should be work that isn't routine. Outside of teaching, of course, teaching has to be routine, but I'm talking about research. We should not do routine consulting just to make money. We should not do mundane R&D just to make money. That should be done by the private sector or certain government agencies that have to do that sort of thing for a long-term goal. Yeah, that's interesting because I've noticed that there's been sort of moving this R&D, well, closing it down within your own business to whenever you're doing cost-cutting, they take out the R&D section of their business. And then there's kind of been this move now thinking, oh, we can go and get this from the university because that'll then be a free option for us if we can get the university working with us on that. So is that the kind of thing you mean, Richard? Absolutely. Certainly in the engineering world, that happened about 25 years ago. <laughs> so yeah. outsourcing phase swept through large corporations, big yeah. multinationals yeah. based in Australia. They closed down their internal R&D and outsourced it. And they did find willing providers because people are so desperate for money. But what it does is it means that the people providing those services are burning up their intellectual capital and they're not generating new yeah. knowledge and new skills to replace it. That's a big issue. And especially in engineering, we do have this workplace integrated learning thing coming through very strongly now at university level saying, right, every one of our graduates has to go and get some experience with industry. Isn't this kind of R&D role a good place for the students to be working? Sure. And as I said, I did sort of exclude teaching from my comment about routine stuff. Absolutely. We need people to do relatively routine work to keep society functioning. So it's critical that our students do some of this sort of thing. But there's got to be an understanding of the importance of research. So in engineering, in Australian engineering degrees, there's always a research project, which is much smaller than the honours project that occurs in science or arts degrees. But we say, look, why are you doing this? The reason you're doing this is to understand what research is and the difference between routine consulting and research. Research is where you may establish a goal of what you want to discover in general, but you can't exactly say what it is you want to discover because the whole point is to discover something you haven't discovered. <laughs> you don't know what's out there. And students, particularly in engineering, often really don't like that. There's no reason they have to like it, but they don't like the idea that there's uncertainty. They need a target. They need a goal. But there are some problems that genuinely occur in industry, and they need to be able to recognize this is a research-grade problem. It's not a consulting-grade problem put a consultant on it, they might say, hmm, yeah, sure, we can do that. And they'll charge you a lot of money and they won't really address the issue. So it's recognizing research needs that's really important as part of the training we give our students. Experience in industry is really critical too. 
And it's also important that we start to train our graduates that the people in industry that they work for may themselves not have that ability to make the judgment what is consulting and what is research. So we need to train a new generation of students that can go out there and say, no, this is a research problem. Because Australia has now transitioned, almost entirely transitioned to a post-industrial economy. So we rely on generating knowledge to grow. And if you look at the fraction of the Australian economy that's doing that, it's scarily small, right? It's a very large service sector, which I don't see as essentially generating technological knowledge, really, maybe other kinds of knowledge. That's great. So it's a really serious issue that we don't have students going out there recognizing the critical importance of research. That's really what we have to emphasize. They can understand that things need to be done today by industry. Absolutely. Do them. They have to do them. But also know when there's something there that isn't quite right, doesn't fit the manual. That's when you need to come back to a university or another research provider and say, we need to look at this over a long-term perspective. I think there's also a values and ethical judgment in here. I think one of the problems of universities doing that sort of mundane research that's not very innovative for the private sector is essentially you're subsidizing an organization or an individual who's trying to make private profit with essentially usually government funds that goes via the universities. And I don't think that's necessarily very good value for the public. So I think what you have to do, you have to always evaluate what is the value of this activity? Is there a value for the public, as in the public good value, or is it a value in terms of innovation, public blue sky type research that we don't know exactly where it's going to lead, but it's doing something really innovative and it will lead to something new. But even when that is really innovative to subsidize it for a private sector company, is highly problematic. You can do it, you can subsidize it in my mind if there is a lot of innovation or if there is a public good dimension to it. It's a little bit different in design. We're doing research through design. So often we're being approached with a not so interesting problem, but then overlay that with maybe methodological new ways of thinking about approaching problems or maybe looking at new materials and new solutions within that. Also with the architecture, they do that sort of thing. They get what is a straightforward request for a design of something and then they try to then innovate within that request. So that's another way of approaching that. I would like to come back to the what kind of research is academia doing part. So in my understanding, based on what you just said, is that academia needs to create knowledge which challenges the status quo and not just for the day-to-day projects. How do you differentiate the R&D, which Richard, you talked about, done by the business, done by the industry, and the R&D, basically, which is done by academia? I think there is no hard and fast rule as you see it. You kind of, you can feel it often. I do think that if you know exactly what you're going to get, then it's a, sort of a red flag. If you know exactly what the result of what you're doing, just solve these equations and then I'll get this result, then it's probably not type of research that should be done within academia. That's right. Magnus has more or less hit the nail on the head. Is it generating knowledge that is universal? Company says, mm, oh, that old pump we've got in the corner of our factory is always causing trouble. Let's get a university to do some research on it and claim it as a tax deduction. It's mm-hmm. an old pump that's not working in the corner. We figure out what's wrong with it. Yes, they'll be happy, but it's not new knowledge of universal value. It's new knowledge to the company. It's like my car isn't working. I take it to the garage. They say, ah, this is the problem with your car. Good. Well, that's new knowledge, but it's not <laughs> universal new knowledge, right? You can usually tell the difference. Yeah, sure, there's a gray area, but ultimately, is it going to be something of wider use? Is it going to lead to entirely new companies being created, lots of new jobs being created? Is it going to lead to wealth being generated? Those are the sorts of things we need to consider. We could look at the old pump and go, actually, we've noticed a lot of these old pumps are breaking down all over the place. So maybe the whole mm. acceptance of what makes a pump or what a pump should be needs to be disrupted or have a look at it or turn it on its head and try and think of what's the essence of what the pump does and can we do that with some new way of approaching it? And I think that's where, that's certainly how it works in design. You look at something, you go, wait a minute, can we actually make this product something that 
is completely new, but we're either using new technologies or new materials and is therefore adding to an understanding of how to do this particular activity in a better way or a more efficient way or a more sustainable way is something that's challenging design at the moment. I think Jen has given a very good example of how it's not necessarily the problem that determines whether it's something for academia or not, it's how you approach it. So you can approach it in a way that generates, as Richard says, the general knowledge that can be used to generate benefits much beyond the original problem. Nice summary, Magnus. That's right. So there is a grey area to continue the pump in the corner analogy. (laughs) Perhaps you could get student on their work integrated learning fixing the pump. That's a consulting job, which, of course, they're getting the student to do less effectively than the consultant. But in the meantime, if the student is appropriately trained, the student will say, "Mm, look, I'm doing this job. I'm getting paid to do it. Fine. It's all right. It's part of my training. But it seems as though there's a bigger issue across industries. There's potential for a new company to be formed. There's potential for a new product to exist. There's a potential of a new design, a new concept. That's what we need. We need to train people who can do that, who can fix problems now that need to be fixed, but also identify where there's new prospects. And so for me, in the area of interaction design and user experience, this to me, when I talk to companies or CEOs, this is the difference between a university trained person and someone who just does an eight week course and learns how to program a website or something like that. It's that we want that problem solving and that critical reflection that comes from a university education to then be applied to problems, not just going in, following the manual and fixing it. So yes, I think That's what academia is about, is adding that critical reflection on the way that we approach these kind of problems. Now, I will be the devil's advocate. The ideas you provided or the example you provided is very practical. So the knowledge which is generated can be used in a very practical way. However, academia and research usually produces very theoretical things For example, research could produce that bees are reproducing in this kind of way and we need to keep an eye on that kind of way, which is just one part of how bees reproduce. This is very theoretical without providing any practical skills or knowledge or usability for this kind of knowledge. Is academia's role to create such theoretical approaches? Absolutely, 100% yes. And if you take the example of bees, so it might sound like a problem of not much practical significance, but bees are incredibly important for industry, for humans, for nature, for the whole planetary system. And if we don't understand how they reproduce and the risks to that reproduction and so on, then we're in the dark or totally in the dark. And we don't even know what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. And no business will pay for it. So who's going to do it? Probably academia. So then the problem there is, whose responsibility is it to get that theoretical, usually a bunch of formulas or chemical reactions or whatever, something very technical, down to the beekeeper? Because until the beekeeper creates a beehive that is Whatever the issue is, maybe it can't be in a windy spot or maybe it shouldn't be near a certain kind of vegetation or whatever. How does that knowledge get down to the beekeeper? Is that our responsibility? I think so, at least in part. Not entirely because someone who is an expert on bee reproduction is likely not going to be a great communicator. I'm just hazarding a guess here. Possibly. It might or might not be. So I guess what I'm saying is that there is something about specialisation here. And there's different roles in academia. And some are good at something very narrow and some are good at communicating science and research. And there's a room for both of those types of people. And I guess that's where the collaborative approach comes so that you can't just leave the deep dive researcher sitting on their own in the corner. You've got to have a collaboration that has a diversity of academic type skills. This is what we've been trying to say to the university. Design has this contribution in that we can take your deep science and say, hey, we know how to communicate this to a broader audience. So it'd be really great 
if we got together on this and we understood how people take in information and you just have your really specific information and the two of us can work together. So I think the multidisciplinary collaborative approach within universities is helping this kind of dissemination from the pure science down to the practice. Yes, we do have to do a better job of dissemination, but I also think we should train our graduates because their graduates are the CEOs of the future to understand that it is industry's role as well to look for and to coordinate the dissemination process. So to go back to Fanny's bee example, the Bee Industry Association, I'm sure there is one or the honey, (laughs) whatever, they perhaps need to, perhaps they already do. If so, that's great. Organize a forum, organize an annual meeting or a conference where they get the academics and say, look, we're paying for you to come to wherever for a day or two, sit there and tell us. And your university's job is to give you training in how to tell so that lay people can understand. But we will pay for you to come and tell us what you've been doing. So at least we know what you're doing and we should understand it. We should be able to take it forward. That is an element which hitherto has largely been missing in Australian industry, but I have seen working well in other countries. It does work reasonably well in Australia where there are huge, well-established industries. The the minerals processing industry is one that I'm aware of. There's an organisation called Australian Minerals Industry Research Association where huge companies, BHP, Rio Tinto, Although they are nominally competitors, they do recognise that there are sufficient long-term issues that it's worth having a forum where they can get people together. And to go back to the B example, you do have much smaller producers there as well. So there's less intense sort of competition. But even where you've got these big giant companies which are competing with each other, they still recognise that there's a long-term benefit for getting that linkage with research going, where the communication and what the research is occurs. And that is probably a better way than the fixing the pump in the corner example. Yeah. Researchers to learn what is actually important to industry. Because industry can say, look, we've got this issue, this issue, this issue. And if two or three people from different parts of the industry say the same thing, the researchers don't have to say anything. Mm, mm, that's interesting. Then they can go back and we can think about it. And oh, I really wish I could solve this problem, but I need to talk to an architect. I need to talk to someone who's an expert in design thinking. I need to talk to someone who's an expert in biology or whatever. And then they can go and form the appropriate collaboration offline and see if they can address this background problem. The next year, they can come back, or two years later, they can come back to the beekeepers forum and say, look, we've done this. What do you think? And then they'll say, well, that's not quite what we want, but we're prepared to put some money into the next stage if you do it properly the way we want. And that's how things should happen. So I think it was really good when the Smart Cities Research Institute had a couple of presentations at Engineers Australia. I think that that kind of going across to the practitioner with whatever research we're doing, that kind of outreach is actually quite important. I should add a couple of things. First one being we do have a very good channel of communicating our research, which we use a lot, which is publishing papers. Now, often those papers aren't necessarily read by industry, but they are read by other academics around the world. I do think those papers have to be written in the way that they're written, quite hard to get through often. Not always, because you have to be very exact about the language and you have to be very rigorous about how you're reporting things. But there is cause, as we've all said, that doesn't get disseminated well enough out into industry. I do think we have a very Australian problem of this issue of academia and industry not being talking to each other as much as they should. If you look, for example, in Sweden, that engagement between academia and industry is really close and they solve problems and do all sorts of things all the time. I don't have the solution, but I feel like we've been on the wrong path for quite a long time in Australia. We're consistently being told that academics just have to go out and find industry contracts. And by doing that, they will then make the research more applied and useful. It hasn't worked. It hasn't been very productive use of academic time and it hasn't really created those connections between industry and academia as much as we thought it would, or which some people thought it would. So I think probably worthwhile for Australia to revisit the way that that works, to be more productive, really, because we do so need have, that innovation. I have heard about this Swedish connection between industry and university. What do they do that succeeds where Australia doesn't? I'm not familiar enough with it to be able to say exactly, but I do feel probably there's more of what Richard is talking about type of engagement between industry and academia that's not focusing necessarily around funding, but funding 
often becomes an outcome in the end anyway. When I was in Denmark working there, companies like Bang & Olufsen would actually approach the university and not with just little mundane things they wanted. They'd be going, we want to create this whole new idea about how sound can be produced. Who have you got here at the university who wants to get on board with us? As opposed to, it always feels in Australia like we're saying that you go out and find an industry that's mm. willing to put up with us. You know, it kind of seems to be a different approach or a different respect for what the university can contribute to a business. Yeah, yeah spot on. And what you said about Sweden, what you said about Denmark, I've seen the same thing in Japan. I've seen the same thing in France. So the difference is in those national jurisdictions, it is critical to innovate to survive for those companies. Bang & Olufsen is in the consumer electronics business. If they just keep producing the same old product for 30 years, they're not going to survive, right? In Japan, it's the same thing. You do get people in industry realizing that it is critical for them to collaborate with universities. It's not like the academics are going out there doing a fantastic job of selling their research in Japan or doing a fantastic job of selling their research in Denmark. It's the other way around. Industry gets it in those parts of the world. Yeah. They don't get it in Australia because traditionally, Australia has, where it's had really big scale, it hasn't had that big scale in industries in which innovation is critical. In the minerals industry, with which I've got some expertise, in the past, by definition, the product has to be the same. <laughs> You want it to be aluminium. Yeah, and, and they're still using the same methods of extraction and whatever. They don't want to innovate there. Well, they do innovate in the process. That is true. They yep. do innovate in the process, but the aim is to produce the same product more cheaply, for example, or, yep. or to adapt to different input conditions to sell, produce the same. So you do get innovative streams occurring for sure, but essentially it is not critical. Yep. Whereas for companies that are producing products that consumers or, or even other corporates will buy, it is critical to innovate. It comes yeah. to the university in all those other jurisdictions. They don't tend to come to universities in Australia. I see what you mean. Australia's always been the primary industry kind of country. We've had oodles and oodles of resources, natural resources that we just mine or cut down or whatever we do. We're not in that same industry of producing new knowledge. Even though if you look at the numbers, what you said, Jenny, spot on is the mentality, culture in this country. It's the mentality, yes. even though the numbers don't bear it out. Huh. At the height of the mining boom in Australia, early 2000s, Australian Bureau of Statistics counted all the companies that benefited from mining downstream as well as the actual mining. It was 8% of GDP. <laughs> Some wow. people would have us believe it was 80%. It wasn't. It yes. was 8%. And then as the mining boom <coughs> cooled off, within a very few years, it dropped from 8% to 5% or something like that. So yeah. you saw a dramatic change in a sector of the economy in terms of its contribution to GDP, but it's out of a, such a small fraction. Right. So that's a tail wagging an enormous dog, really, in terms of its yeah. importance. Agriculture, 2 to 3%. So... That is something which has fixed a mindset in this country, which is totally out of date. Yeah. Off the sheep's back, we used to call it. Yes, yes, yes. That, and they were saying that well into the 20th century, even when that was already out of date in the late 19th century. Yeah. And they're still thinking we're a resource-based economy when the truth is we're not. I think Andy Niger talks about the resource curse. He did his PhD on Soviet economics and these sort of things. So. Jurisdictions who are heavily reliant on resources, Norway, Russia, Australia, have major troubles in shifting their innovation systems to not be focused on those and be more innovative. You explained how industry can get better value approaching academia and presenting problems that they want to have innovation in their industry. On the other hand, I've also heard many academics talk about that if industry prescribes what we need to research, then research will be compromised and not new knowledge will be produced, but something which industry needs. Do you see a problem with industry approaching academia or am I misunderstanding something? I think it comes back to what we were talking about before. What is the value of the research on what academics are doing? Is it bringing something that's generalizable, developing something that's a public good 
innovation, new stuff that couldn't be generated otherwise. So if it's not, academics are free to do consulting, but at full consultancy rates, right? So that's nothing terribly wrong. It's just the way it is. That's right. If industry understands the value of academia, then they won't waste their time making those sorts of low-level approaches. They'll use us for what we're good at. There's also, I assume, Magnus, in that a time factor. So if we're going to innovate, we're going to come up with something new, that's going to take you a lot longer than us just doing a quick fix for you. Whatever the rate, it's still going to take a whole process that we need to go through. That sounds reassuring, to be honest, that academia is able and willing to say that we want to create real research with innovation. I would like to come back to the multidisciplinary part. First and foremost, I already talked about this with some of you that are we talking about multidisciplinarity or transdisciplinarity? And the second part of this question is whether academia is really able to create these multidisciplinary and transdisciplinary approaches, or are we still talking about academic silos? I think the answer is we're probably better placed than nearly everyone, but we really crap at it still most of the time. And the reason we're really bad at it or not fulfilling the potential really is because institutionally, we're set up in disciplines in silos. We're set up in journals, in departments, in schools that are very much about a narrow narrative that doesn't really encapsulate transdisciplinarity or multidisciplinarity either. So I think it is a problem, and I haven't seen it resolved in any university or research organisation, really. And I think we've gone backwards because when we had the faculty level, we were in a faculty that went across several disciplines. So we were in the Faculty of Health, Arts and Design. So I was doing a lot of collaborative work between design and health or with arts people. Now we're just in a school of design in a much more siloed environment and the focus is on the Centre for Design Innovation. And that whole going across the university thing, when we lost the Smart Cities Research Institute, we kind of lost a whole group of people from all the different disciplines that we were starting to get to know and starting to collaborate with. So I think the university's actually gone backwards in terms of supporting multi-transdisciplinary research. And it's a shame because those transdisciplinary kind of projects that have those collaborations between community, private sector, government and academia that have the real transformative potential. It's only through those ones that we can change the paradigm and to start to do things differently, in my mind. Yeah, yeah. And it's well known that, mm. that multidisciplinary teams lead to greater creativity. It's sort of researched and documented. That's right. And again, I'd reiterate that if industry came to the university world with genuinely transdisciplinary problem, and if the industry recognised it was a transdisciplinary problem, which again comes back to us, if we train our graduates when they eventually become senior people in industry, they should be able to recognise that this is a transdisciplinary problem. I've mentioned how we have always done engineering training for them to at least recognise it as a research problem. What we probably should also do in all disciplines is to say, well, is this a genuine transdisciplinary problem? If they can at least recognise it, then they will demand that the university put together the transdisciplinary team. Then I think the other issues that, that Magnus has raised, which is absolutely true, that we're not that great at doing transdisciplinary research, we may be able to ameliorate those issues to some extent. Firstly, because if the industry is willing to pay for it, the industry wants the transdisciplinary approach, then that solves some of the issue because we will hire people specifically to do that transdisciplinary research. The other aspect is that when we do transdisciplinary research, where are we going to publish it? Right. So we have to publish in journals in our own area. If we unremunerated from industry, say, I want to do transdisciplinary research, I'm keen on it, let me do it, my career will take a hit because there are great transdisciplinary journals, but, yeah, but they're not right. they're recognised in each of our yeah. fields. So it really requires funding from the outside. So we get funding from the outside, we put someone onto a transdisciplinary project for a year or two, that's going to benefit a young person's career. It's not a problem. It's not going to ruin their career. If we put the effort into focusing on it without funding, we might enjoy it for a while, but it's not going to help us. Part of the issue is that a lot of the problems, and if we go back to cities, a lot of the problems that need to be addressed in a transdisciplinary way are not really ones that the industry would fund. 
industry wouldn't fund. How can we make cities more resilient? How can we address climate change? How can we transition the economy to be circular? And to some extent, they will do that, but not in a fully transdisciplinary systemic way. They will focus on what they can do to maximize their competitive advantage in a market or something like that. So it often ends up being really where governments could potentially fund it, but governments don't generally have a lot of funds for those sort of things. And transdisciplinary research is time-consuming and takes a lot of resources. So there is a mismatch here between the tasks of transdisciplinary research, which are often huge, they're big and challenging, and the amount of funding that's available. They're also very difficult to get through the Australian Research Council process, you know, to sort of have them back a trans multidisciplinary mm. project is quite a difficult win if you can actually manage to get that. So the other thing I was going to say is that this whole discipline thing, this siloed discipline, I was talking to someone about it and they're saying it's a very 21st century thing. And if you look back to the days of Leonardo da Vinci, he was both the artist and the scientist. And there wasn't this whole division of which side of the fence are you on. They didn't have this dividing up of disciplines that universities have seemed to become extremely good at. Yeah. And we've got drivers that we can't ignore from the metrics that we yes. justify. Where does our salary come from? It comes from teaching. So we need to get students to come here rather than some other institution. And the university uses our publication metrics, citation statistics in some aggregate sense, to show that we're a good university. Come here. That has mostly relevance for overseas students because global rankings are Ones the overseas students will pay attention to, they don't have the internal information that domestic students have. Nevertheless, it is used for domestic marketing as well. And it is another issue with Australian universities that essentially what happens is that research, the value, the true value of research to the university's bottom line is marketing. So that again tends to force us to do non-transdisciplinary, non-multidisciplinary research because we can get the citations of our papers if we do focus on what we're specialist at. Then what does academia need to get through these problems, to get further from creating research for marketing, to get beyond the budgets, the research governance? What does academia need to move beyond these problems? That's easy. More time and more money. <laughs> <laughs> I do think the funding model is a big problem. And the funding model comes back to the appreciation of research and science and academic endeavor. I think Australia is one of the lowest fundings in all of the OECD countries of research and academic endeavors. Because they pulled quite... back the research and made it all competitive, didn't they, Magnus? Yeah, that's right. So which is the Australian model that you subsidise either through foreign students or through industry funding. Yeah. But we do have a chance, and we have a chance because we are the educators, right? If we get our act together on the education front, we can plant those seeds in the minds of our students who will, after all, go out there and become, as I've mentioned, the CEOs of the future mm. and say, look, if you really want your company to be successful. If you want to be successful in the long term, you need to be able to understand the importance of research. It's through that culture change that the demand will come from industry for genuine research. As you've said, as it occurs in Denmark, Jenny, as it occurs in Sweden, as yep. it occurs in Japan, as it occurs in other many other countries in the US. In the US, companies beating down the doors of academics, at least in <laughs> some major universities, just keen to get involved because they know it's critical to their company's success. We need to make our graduates understand that that's the world we're moving into and we already have moved into so that they really need to understand that. And if that culture is changed, then it should be self-correcting that business will then stump up the cash it should stump up because it needs to do so for its survival. So and maybe in this, this is what we're talking about when we start saying, well, Let's get the stories out there. Let's use the conversation. Let's try and get news articles. Let's try and get the future students or the current students looking at not publication numbers and citations, but research that makes a difference and has impact and is changing things. I don't really get social media, but design is doing a lot of putting out the things that we are doing over social media. And maybe it's that way that the student of the future can choose which university they want to go to. That notion of we are teaching these students and then they go out and then into the world and have an appreciation. 
some universities have turned that into a business model, right? Delft University, I think the likes of MIT and whatnot, where a lot of the students, graduates go then out into industry, into major roles, and then they bring those industries back to engage with strong collaboration is actually based a lot of the times on those ex-graduates. What do you specifically need as researchers? Did I mention time and money? Or cloning myself? Did I mention that? Time and money is what Jenny said. Time, time and money. <laughs> you said it already. <laughs> and I think that that sort of notion of academics are in, in a luxurious position of not having to do what a lot of people in industry do, the problem solving on a like all the time. So we should really utilize that. But at the moment, a lot of times there's so many demands on our time to get a little bit of space and time to think about something which is very valuable, but that's where all the magic happens. So I need the university to respect that kind of thing, Magnus, that Hmm. actually research and coming up with good ideas is actually time to think. And so Hmm. what I really need them to do in a really serious way is separate out teaching semesters and research semesters. I need time that doesn't have a thousand emails from students. I can't mix the two in the same week. It just becomes overwhelming, the switching between contexts. I really need the university to have respect for the time a researcher needs to embed in the problem, to work on the problem, to have time to think about it and not be trying to multitask within that. Thank you so much, Jenny, Richard and Magnus (laughs) for your time. It was amazing. Do you have any closing comments or requests for the audience? Well, if people listening to this are in industry. Perhaps if you've listened to the whole thing, thank you very much. Think about what we've said. Think about what the long-term value to your personal career could be if you develop a meaningful research liaison with the university. Think about what the long-term benefit to your company might be if your company develops a meaningful research liaison with the university. Think about it seriously. It doesn't need to cost you vast amounts of money if you're a company, but it does need effort and time and dedication and come and talk to university. Ideally our university, but anyone will do. This century, there is some very big challenges that we need to address. The way that we address those will be through transdisciplinary methodologies, not just research. There's a lot of things that go into finding the solutions and getting those solutions adopted and implemented and supported. That's not a very easy task. And academics are really well-placed to be able to contribute constructively in that. But at the moment, we don't have a model for how to do that, to address those big challenges. So I think the first step is let's figure out in Australia to start with perhaps a way of doing this jointly. Over this time that we've had this discussion, it's very clear, given the three of us and also the colleagues we know, that academia is really, really keen and willing to work with industry because we want to attack real world problems. We want to make a difference. We want to have our research being meaningful. And even if it is a deep dive, it actually contributes to some greater problem that's out there. Thank you so much. It was really interesting to hear the different aspects of academic responsibilities. Richard gave his views about the urban brain in episode 27, Magnus described sustainability in episode 36, and Jenny explained interaction design in episode 93. You can find out more about Richard, Magnus and Jenny online, all the links are in the show notes. What was the most interesting part for you? What questions did arise regarding the panelists' approach to the future of cities? What have you learned from this panel discussion? Let me know on Twitter at WTF4Cities or on the WTF4Cities.com website where the transcripts and show notes are available. You can also subscribe on the website not to miss any new episodes and leave some feedback. I hope this was an interesting interview for you as well and thanks for tuning in. What is the future for cities podcast? 